So glad that you are here. Um, that was great stuff. That was awesome. Thanks, Pastor Rob. <clears throat> you know, I was listening, uh, or actually read, about a recent survey um, that gauged how pastors are doing during COVID, right? One in three pastors, it says, the survey, have given serious consideration for quitting sometime in the past 20 months. Now understand, that's just those who admit it, right? And I was thinking about this in regards to pastor appreciation, um, where last week you guys honored us as pastors. And I just want, one thing I want you to know, Four Oaks, is that that is not how we feel towards you or the ministry here at all. And, I, and at all is capitalized in my notes, right? At all. I mean, we've had our share of bumps during COVID, every church has, but there's been such a remarkable unity and support and encouragement here. And I just want to say on behalf of the pastors, we are incredibly thankful to have such an amazing church to serve. And thank you guys for your support, your gifts, your encouragement. We just, we, you know, we love you and so thankful that we are here and that God has given us this church family. Now, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Making our way through this book in a series we're calling Rags to Righteous. And what Paul, even if you haven't been here, I, I can sum up the first three chapters this way. And you might be thinking, why didn't you do this to begin with, right? Here's the first three and a half chapters. What Paul has been pounding into your and my head and our hearts for these last several weeks is that you and I are not made right by anything that you do. You are made right with God by what he does for you. And Paul has made, tried to make this crystal clear that what God has done has sent his son as a sacrifice of atonement, as justification for our sins, for those who are trusting in Jesus. And I think it's at this very moment in this letter that I think Paul anticipates a question. And, you know, this is how Paul is writing Romans. He, he kind of anticipates arguments or he f kind of forecasts what you and I are going to say or what the readers are going to say, and he kind of gets out ahead of it. And, well, that was lovely. And I promise it was on Do Not Disturb, but that doesn't matter. It wanted to be to tell you, Siri did, that it's 64 degrees right now, okay? So anyway, let's pray. We'll be done, and we'll head on. No. So, and I'm sure like some of you like millennials are like, okay, boomer, way to go. Let me tell you how to turn your, your watch off. And, and I would appreciate that help. I really would. So I think at this moment, Paul is anticipating a question. And the question is, Paul, you've been talking about faith and how we're justified through faith. And it's by faith alone and that without faith, we can't please you. And, and we're hearing so much about faith. But Paul, what exactly is faith? See, that's the question that he's asking. And if it's true, church, that the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. If what Paul tells us is true, that we're not justified by obeying the works of the law, but instead by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, you and I better have a crystal clear picture of what exactly biblical faith is. And that's where Paul wants us to go this morning. And I want to just say this right off the top. This is a hard thing to discuss in our particular culture. And that's because faith has kind of taken on this amorphous, nebulous sort of meaning, right, in our culture. Whether it's George Michael singing, um, oh, gotta have faith, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, so there you go. Or the athlete who says, you know, we just had faith that in the end we were gonna pull it out. 
We had faith in our teammates. And just once, I'd like to see that interview when that team did not win and what they would say about their faith, right? But see, faith culturally has come to mean something along the lines of fate or karma or good luck or maybe wishful thinking. Let's be honest, even us religious people can be confused about what faith is. Recall that James is writing in his letter to a group in the church who claim to have faith, but James says, no, you don't have faith. You just have this, you have demonic faith. It's cold, dead, intellectual. It involves your mind, but it doesn't involve your heart. And into this sort of ambiguous, mushy, postmodern 21st century spirituality, God's voice thunders forth through Paul and helping us understand what it is, this thing that we call faith and why it is that we need it. So that's where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's word together. And we're going to start in verse 13, just to kind of give ourselves a running start into this message. This is Paul writing. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, as we always do, we're asking for your help now as we unpack this passage. Lord, we believe that your word is inspired, that it is breathed out by you, that it's useful for teaching and rebuking, persuading, explaining, lifting up. And so, Father, I pray that you would grace us now with the grace to hear and understand your word. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please take your seats. Three points this morning. Here we go. We're going to talk about the staple of faith, the substance of faith, and the sum of faith. And wasn't that so nice for Paul to alliterate that for us, right? The staple of faith, the substance of faith, the sum of faith. Let's, here, let's talk about the staple of faith first. I want you to look back at verse, those opening four or five verses, verses 13 through 16. And Paul here makes it crystal clear, once again, that it depends, his exact words, it depends upon faith. 
In other words, our, who we are in Christ is not dependent upon our obedience to the law. Because if that's the way to justification, if that's the way to acceptance, if that's the way to, to know and trust and believe in Jesus, the law will always bring us wrath, right? Because we can't obey the law. That's been Paul's point after point after point. But faith doesn't rest on perfect obedience. Faith rests on the promise and the grace of God. So when we talk about the staple of faith, here's what we're asking. We're asking, what is at the very heart of faith? What is the center, the very center of faith? What is the object or the constant of our faith? Now, at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious, the answer is pretty clear, right? It's God. He is at the very center of faith, which makes sense when you think about it, right? If you have, any, if you have faith or you and I have faith in anything at all that's not absolute, that's not fixed, that's not certain, that's not 100% dependable every single time, at some point, right, that faith is going to let us down. You can put all the faith you want in your body and you can spend hours in the gym or hours dressing or sculpting your body to look a particular way, but in the end, right, it's going to let you down. You might spend all of your time in your business or raising your financial capital and and, and posture to the world around you, but at the end of the day, if that's where your hope is, if that's where your faith is, it's ultimately going to let you down as well. Because even your marriages... For those of you who have good marriages, at some point, right, your spouse is going to, to let you down. And I say all that to say that I think one of the most important things that we can note under this section is simply this. The most important element of your faith and the most important element of my faith is not the quantity of our faith. The most important thing about faith is not the quality of our faith. The most important thing for our faith is the object of our faith. See, if, if, if this is why Jesus said all you need is faith as big as a mustard seed, right? Just the tiniest amount of faith will unite your heart to God's. And let me just give this illustration. Some of you might have a fear of flying, and if so, you need to know that you have the condition called aerophobia, right? John Madden, the announcer, would never fly. He would always take a, take a train wherever he went. And just imagine you're super nervous about this trip that's coming up, and you're thinking of, you're in the line at the airport, and you're getting ready to get on the, plane, on the plane, and your mind is just kind of going berserk, right? You begin thinking about all the things that could possibly go wrong. Well, Pastor Paul, what if the landing gear gets stuck? Or what if there's ice on the wings? Or what if one of the engines goes out? Or one of the pilots is inebriated? Not our pilot. Scott Polar flies the friendly skies for blue, blue, blue air anyway. He don't have to worry about Scott, right? But finally, at the last possible second, you get on, barely. And for the next three hours on that trip, you just kind of endure one long panic attack, right? Until finally you stagger out of that plane. Because the quantity of your faith for flying was very small. You might even say the quality of your faith was subpar. However, the success of that flight was ultimately not dependent upon those things. The success of that flight was ultimately dependent upon the object of your faith. 
And for, the, for you to receive the full benefits of that flight, all you had to do was what? Get on. On the other hand, you could have complete confidence in your ability to jump off this catwalk and fly, but it doesn't mean you can. All of that is the point to say faith does you no good spiritually if it's in the wrong thing. And so Paul wants to point us towards an example of faith. And this is why he points us to Abraham, because his complete confidence was in God. Now look back at the text, look at verse 17. First of all, Paul says, Abraham worships God who gives life to the dead. Now there are several examples of resurrection in the Bible. There's the, there's the story where the boy falls into the tomb of Elisha and comes back to life. Uh, we have, of course, the raising of Lazarus, Jairus's daughter in the New Testament, and of course, Jesus himself. But you know what? Abraham didn't know any of those stories, right? They hadn't happened yet. In fact, in Genesis, we find no resurrection recorded in the life of Abraham. And so we have to say, how did this picture of resurrection or this idea of resurrection get planted in Abraham's mind? See, there was a pivotal point in Abraham's life, wasn't there? When I think resurrection was very much on his mind. See, God had promised Abraham a son through the child of promise, Isaac. And God had miraculously provided that child. And that child had grown in in stature and knowledge. And he was coming into his own. And then what did God ask him to do? He said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, the son of promise, the son I gave you. And here's what Hebrews said, moved Abraham forward into faith to obey God. Listen to this, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now listen, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Church, don't think that your theology doesn't have everything to do with the way you live your life. See, Abraham's faith was intimately tied to the object of his faith. He didn't trust himself, but he sure trusted in God. You see, Abraham... And us, we worship a resurrection God. Church, we worship a God who can actually bring things back to life. A God who can actually raise the dead, who will one day raise us up. And the reason that we move forward in faith and hope, look at verse 35, that tells us, is that God raised his own son from the dead. And he promises to raise you and me too. I know some of you have lost loved ones. You've lost friends during this season, family members even. And you have to ask, what, what, what compels you to continue to worship God? What compels you and I to worship the same God who not only gives but also takes away? You continue to worship him. I continue to worship him even in the midst of heartbreak because he is the resurrection God. He will one day raise up in power all those who belong to him. And so Paul says, Abraham worshiped God, believed God, had faith in God as the one who could raise the dead back to life. But look at verse 17. The second thing that Paul says about God is that 
this God that Abraham is worshiping, verse 17, is that he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, I think here Paul is, of course, pointing us back to the creation. Because what happened at the creation? Well, we know from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. I want you to understand what this means. It wasn't that God came to the universe and the matter and all the mess and decided to make something of it, to use it for his good, to kind of fashion something redeemable. We have to understand that, that with God, there was no matter. There was no universe. There was no substance. There was just God. And what God did was literally speak the universe into existence. It's staggering when you think about it. God spoke, and so it was. Now, let me just ask you a question, and we're going to circle back around to this question in a little bit. But where in your life are you asking God to fill vacant places? Where in your life are you asking God to create life? Where in your life, and I don't ask if you are, we all are. We all have barren places, spiritually speaking, that we're saying, God, please show up. I've been praying for years for my son, my daughter, my spouse, my friends. I've been, I've been laboring before you in my job and in my financial provision. And God, I'm having to ask you, Lord, show up. Will you show up? And Abraham knew that his God not only raised the dead to life, but he spoke very matter into existence. Where are you barren in your life this season? Where are you looking to, to fill that place, to give it life? So this, in fact, is the staple of faith is God. Number two, the substance of faith. Two phrases that I want to hone in on here. The first is this. It says, Abraham considered his weakness and fragility. Now, in some versions of your Bible, like the King James and some other older versions, it might say something like, Abraham considered not his body or Sarah's body when God made this promise to him. And by that, what they're saying is, is that, you know, Abraham, when God told him he was going to have a son by Sarah, and he was 100 and Sarah was 90, he didn't even think about it. Didn't even think about his body. Didn't even think about the, the physical impossibility. Just he had faith and he went for it. I don't think that's what this means. See, the ESV, which we're using this morning, I think gets this right. See, it's actually the exact opposite. See, not only did Abraham not ignore the facts of his situation, what does it say? He carefully considered them. He pondered them. That's the meaning of the word. He, he, he knew his age. He knew his wife's age. He knew his health. He knew her health. He, he studied it intently. He thought carefully and closely about them. In other words, he knew how hopeless it really was that God had told him that he was going to give him a son. See, Abraham doesn't sugarcoat the desperateness and impossibility of the situation. That's the point. And so one of the, one of the steps to exercising biblical faith is you and I need to be brutally honest and to assess our own situations, to consider it, to think intently upon it, and to come to the conclusion that unless God gives life, 
unless God gives breath, unless God shines light into darkness, there is no hope. And it's not until you get to that place of realizing, in myself, I have no hope. And I have nothing good in me that can make this thing a reality. Until you and I have reached that place, we won't exercise biblical faith. But see, what Abraham did is he considered it. He thought long and hard, and he came to the conclusion, I can't do this. And that's the point. You see, part of what makes biblical faith faith is that you come to the end of yourself. You have to see the impossibility and the futility of your own efforts and your own contributions. This is what Abraham did. Let me ask you this. What do you see when you look at the barren places in your life? What do you see when you think about those places that are just dead or they have no life or there's nothing going on or it appears hopeless? Are you one who says, you know what, if I just work a little harder... If I just try a little bit more, if I just, if, you know, if, uh, if I can just kind of manipulate this and reorganize that and sort of get this all working in the same way, if that's our response, we truly don't know our situation. We truly don't know how hopeless we are apart from Jesus Christ. And so it, Paul says, Abraham considered his own body. The second phrase that Paul uses to describe Abraham's faith, look at verse 17. It says, in hope, he believed against hope. Now, that's a paradoxical statement if there ever was one, right? How do you hope against hope? What does that mean? Well, that word against, it literally means to to come at, to attack, to press in. And we see an example of, of this idea of hope in Acts 27, 20. Now, listen to this. Luke is writing... He's been on a voyage with Paul, and they're about to be swept into the ocean. And here's what Luke says. He says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That is what it means to embrace a hopeless situation. You you abandon yourself to any and all hope to any and all human hope. But listen to what Luke goes on to tell us about the Apostle Paul. This is Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So listen to this. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. In other words, all hope was lost. All hope was abandoned. But then God spoke. But then came a word from the Lord, which allowed them, right, to hope against hope, meaning it allowed them to come up against worldly hope human hope and in favor of God-centered hope, Christ-centered hope. This is why it says that Abraham did not waver. Now that word waver, it means to flicker, like on and off, like a candle in the wind. And what this meant is that he could have said, what's the use? 
There's, there's no way, God, I can't see a way forward here. But yet, he has faith. He goes into his wife. I mean, not to be too graphic, but think about this. Think of all the things Abraham could have said. But God, we haven't been intimate in years. Decades. I'm an old man. This is an old woman. But, and Tim Keller says this, so if you don't like it, email him, all right, which he'll ignore. But know this, this gave Abraham the courage to have God-centered, faith-filled intercourse with his wife. To know that it's impossible for me, but I'm just like dragging myself on the airplane. God, I, I, I just had this tiniest bit of faith, but you're going to have to be the one to do it. You're going to have to be the one to come around. You're going to have to be the one to change hearts. I want to ask you again. Right now, where are the barren places in your life? Where in your life right now are you praying that God would bring something out of nothing? Where are you being challenged right now to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that unless God shows up, there is no hope? Maybe it's a marriage, an illness, a child, a conflict, a money situation, a parent, a friend. Abraham's faith was not dependent upon the quality or quantity of his faith. It was dependent upon the object of his faith. And because of the object of his faith, and because the object of our faith, our hope does not waver. It does not flicker. We trust God to be faithful to his word. He, we trust God to be faithful to his promises. And I just want to remind us of a few of those promises this morning. Just kind of let these rest on your soul as I speak them out. Christian, if you're in Christ, God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Christian, if you are in Christ, God has promised to cover all of your sins even the sins that no one else knows about but you and him. Christian, if you are in Christ, God has promised to work all things together for your good. It doesn't mean all the things in your life that are happening right now are inherently good in and of themselves. It just means that God is going to use them purposefully, sovereignly, to work out his purposes in your life. Christian, if you are in Christ, God has promised to raise you up on the last day. If you are, Christian, if you are in Christ, God has promised to live in and abide with you. He lives in you. There won't be one second, even from your transition from this world to the next, where God will abandon your soul. See, Christian, if you're in Christ, he is a God we can entrust, trust and entrust ourselves to him through faith. So Christian, where this morning, where do you need those eyes? Where do you need that discerning heart? Where do you need to be reminded? And some of you are, it can be one of two extremes, right? Either there is no hope and I've given up, or it's really all about me and something I've got to do. And God has said, no, 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 no. It's not all about you. It's all about me. It's about my sovereign work in your life. It's about the words of promise that I have spoken over you and to your soul. It's about being able to count 
on God to do what he says he's going to do. It doesn't mean, Christian, that he fixes all of the problems in your life. But it does mean that God has a sovereign care over all the problems in your life and that you can trust him completely and that he will be faithful to his word and he will work all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know this Jesus? Paul wants us to know this Jesus. Now listen, last point, here we go. The sum of faith. The sum of faith. If I were to ask you, and here we're going to look at verses 23 and 24. If I were to ask you, why are you here? Why are you in church? Why do you belong to the community of believers? A very common answer that I've heard, and it's an answer a lot of times men give, to be honest. They want to say something like this. You know, religion was a part of my life growing up, Pastor Paul. I went to VBS and um, camp and all those kinds of things. But as I got into high school and college, I kind of fell away. I started to drift. I partied. But you know what? Now I'm in my mid-30s. Not, this is not intended for anybody in here, okay? But if the shoe fits. But I'm in my mid-30s, and now I'm ready to settle down. I'm ready to get back into church. I'm ready to do the right thing. It's time to start adulting. It's time to start teaching our kids good morals. And let me just say this. That's not Paul's goal for us this morning. That is not Paul's goal. This is not what he believes God aims to give us. So you can get back to church, do the right thing, start teaching the right morals, but guess what? Be eternally lost. Christianity, church, remember, is not a collection of moralisms or principles or life lessons to help you be a better person. God has an agenda way bigger than that for you and me. Look at verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but listen, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Listen to that part again. These words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham alone. Church, they were written for you. They were written for us. God's heart for you is way bigger than just to, just to kind of poke around the edges of your life, to try to like sharpen the brass on the Titanic. God's, God's got an agenda way bigger than that. Church, God wants to deliver you from your sins through his son. God wants to give you a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God wants to transform you from the inside out. He doesn't promise to fix all the problems in your life, although some of us have given up. We need to continue to pray. We need to continue to trust. We need to continue to hope. But what God has promised us, he will change us from the inside out when we have the faith of Abraham. Just a small amount of faith. And you know who else ultimately had the faith of Abraham? You may not have ever thought about this. And I didn't until this week when I was working on this. But Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Do you realize there wasn't a millisecond of his life that Jesus was not walking in the power of the Spirit by faith? When he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was trusting God to meet his provision, when he was hanging there on the cross, he had to entrust his soul to God knowing that 
even as the father turned his back upon him, that he would indeed raise him from the dead. Jesus had the perfect faith, and he laid that life down of his so that his perfect faith could become yours as a gift, not by anything that you've done or earned or deserved it, so that no one may boast, but because of the free gift of his son Jesus to us. Church, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? Are you trusting in him? If there's anyone here who is, as you're hearing this, and you've realized, you know what? I've been in church all my life, and I've never thought about Jesus as having a relationship with me. I've been in church all my life. I've always thought of it in terms of like learning the right things and doing the right things. I've never thought about it in terms of Jesus laying his life down for me. If that's you this morning, we would love to talk to you after the service. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to come alongside of you and help introduce you to the faith of Abraham. Let's pray.